0: Hi, this is Austin Wintery, and you are listening to the Sound Architect podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect. I'm Alex Jones, and I'm joined by Austin Wintory. Um, I'm going to start off with asking what a typical day for you is like, if there is such a thing.
0: <laughs> uh, there largely is not such a thing and that is kind of by design i try to not do the same thing two days in a row and for the for the explicit reason that i'm i'm always convinced that my creative process will fall into kind of a rut if i do i don't like to ritualize composing which is different than most i don't know about most but many many composers throughout history um, have had kind of like their checklist almost of things they need to do before they can be in the right composing headspace. But I tend to freely drift around. And and for example, I don't work from home and I don't even like to drive to my studio the same route every day, or at least two days in a row, because it's just part of that larger mentality of, of how do I keep the writing as fresh as possible? You know, I don't, I'm always kind of paranoid that, that I'm, I'm, Rather profoundly limited in what I can do musically, and so I'm looking for ways to let the outside world, you know, exert an influence that pushes me outside of the familiar and the sort of comfort zone that I work in. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, every day is some blend of, of course, writing music, and usually, um, uh, you know, I'll work on something like a pet project and then I'll work on, you know, something that has a more pressing deadline or whatnot. And then, um, inevitably lots of phone calls and emails and possibly, you know, meetings like lunches or whatnot, um, occasional odd, uh, uh, you know, sort of unexpected, um, uh, things will, will come up. And I also end up inevitably most days, I end up eating lunch here at my desk and watching lectures on YouTube. Uh, and uh, and I've, I've, I've kind of shied away from lunch meetings the last few years in favor of dinner meetings so that I can watch lectures over lunch. That, that's, that's, that's the only thing probably resembling consistency because I seem to do that every day. Um, but in any case, so yes, it, it's kind of all over the map and that's very much deliberate.
1: Cool, fair enough. Um, I'm interested... When it came to Abzu, sort of your most recent release, how you approached the underwater aspect of the game and why you chose to work with the human voice quite a lot.
0: Um, So I gave zero regard to the underwater aspect because location is always irrelevant, I think, or almost always. Because if we're relying on the music to communicate that, then the game is obviously failing to do so on its own. And it never will because the location is literally the location. So there are perhaps emotional implications of uh, an underwater environment, uh, but, um, but the, uh, the extent to which I'm trying to literally represent it in the score is zero. And it's the same way that Assassin's Creed Syndicate did not aspire to sound like Victorian London. It's the same way that Journey does not aspire to sound like the desert or whatever the case may be, Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there are occasional ways where the music, the vocabulary that feels right might lend itself seemingly very well to those elements. Like, for example, there is a kind of quasi-classical music vibe to – uh, specifically, kind of a mid-romantic, mid-19th century vibe to Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which is the time period of the game. But that is largely coincidental, or m- maybe not so much coincidental, but like a bonus of the choices that I made. So it's the same thing here, especially because the underwater environment is, in terms of if we're if we're if we're looking at it straight on, that's um that's very hostile. We can't survive down there, you know, we can't breathe. Uh, There's tremendous amounts of pressure that uh, our body can't cope with below even very shallow depths without the aid of equipment, uh, never mind the breathing problem. And of course, we have zero presence on the food chain down there. Um, And so obviously, Abzu has zero aspiration to bring any of that into play. Abzu is a totally non combative very sort of meditative game that's meant to be this almost overstimulation of raw beauty and wonder. So the score is focused on that. The score is focused on how do we make this environment kind of magical and filled with life and vitality, none of which are necessarily automatic associations of the idea of diving or being underwater. Um, Now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but either way, the, the score sought to go with the emotional takeaway and not any kind of environmental or literal anything. As for the human voice aspect, that is... Um, I don't have a, I don't have a tremendously um, sort of worked out answer to that. Only insofar as I do, the score, like most of my scores, is not light motivic, meaning there aren't themes abounding for all these different subsets of the experience. There's a main theme which is kind of the story of the diver, much in the same way that there's a main theme that's the story of the the kind of Companion or whatever in journey, but I use it pretty sparingly. Um, the The main uh, the the main uh, way in which I use something akin to themes is specific colors associated with specific ideas. So the oboe is the diver, um, the harp ensemble is kind of the oceanic life itself, and then this notion of abzu. Which is kind of this, this the, the notion of it's kind of it's, it's, I mean it it comes from this Akkadian creation myth, but it's this idea of the the intermingling of salt and fresh water at which the creation of the world took place. Um, the translation that they like in the ca- in the case of the game is the wisdom of the ocean, and to me that was the choir. The choir is the sort of tra- spiritual transcendent over and above the experience. So it's something that I tease at throughout the score and I keep it deliberately very much in the background until the kind of finale, at which point it then finally earns its place to step forward, which I will avoid any more specific details and simply because <laughs> it's spoiler ridden. But, uh, but yes, so the, the idea with the voice was to represent the kind of almost mystic uh, uh, quality, but but do so in a way that intentionally keeps it in the periphery of the experience for the vast majority of the experience. Does that make any sense?
1: It does make sense. <laughs> Good, <laughs> well, that's cool. a <laughs> Um What do you reckon is the biggest challenge you faced as a composer specifically for video games, and how did you overcome that?
0: Well, I don't know that I have overcome uh, the, the challenges. you know each project is a chance to kind of move the needle a little bit but I would say for me the goal has always been for, for my entire career and likely will be for the entire rest of it finding ways to make music which is deeply truly deeply dynamic and interactive and very responsive to player behavior in a way that it feels like the player is very much in the driver's seat of the musical experience um, yet it still contains the essence of what music is, which is a linear performance in which we are moved by carefully considered musical performance. That Those two things are in direct conflict with one another because musical performance that takes place over time in a linear fashion is almost by definition not capable of being hijacked by the player's actions, and yet my goal is to create a kind of musical vocabulary in which it's not hijacking, it's it's designed to be directed by the player, or by the listener, or the audience, or whatever the case. Um, and so every game is an opportunity to explore this more, and of course explore it in different ways, because games have such wildly divergent game mechanics. You know, a game like Abzu is very much this experiential um, sort of game where your movement through the space and to the extent your interaction with that space are the primary mechanics going on. Everything else is, is relatively superfluous in terms of the actual musical implications. But then you take a game like the Banner Saga and you have a turn based combat uh, situation where the game is very, it's being driven by arithmetic under the hood in a very predictable way. So now you have a whole other thing that you can take into account, because first off, you have the gameplay of turn-based combat, which of course Abzu has nothing remotely like that. Uh, But on top of that, the turn-based combat is not like D&D or something where there's a bunch of dice rolling or random number generation that's helping to really kind of fuel what happens. It's very specific. You have five armor. I have seven strength therefore I hit you for two damage that is will always and forever be that way except for of course very minor tweaks from like items that you can pick up and things like that as a result we can use the underlying mathematics to drive the musical behavior in in ways that's very controllable so that's a whole other thing you know game like Monaco or or my new game with um, pocket watch tooth and tail those are those are whole other ways so it's kind of like the notion of musically satisfying dynamic music is this big amorphous blob that different games kind of give me a different entry point into. Um, and I will likely spend the entire rest of my life trying to come up with a satisfying way to, to really feel like, okay, that now finally does it. And who knows? I may, I may never actually achieve that. We'll see.
1: <laughs> so when you're composing for an interactive model, do you still write in a linear style? Or is there a different way that you might think about composing the music?
0: Well, it goes, I mean, it's kind of the same answer because it varies dramatically from one project to the next. One thing that I don't traditionally do, which can put me a little bit at odds with productions sometimes, is I don't write a piece of music and then say, okay, how can we make this interactive? Um, Because that to me is like saying I'm going to design the blueprints to a building and I'm just gonna say, here's a bunch of rooms, here's a bunch of plumbing and electricity. Now, what do we want? Do we want it to be an office? Do we want it to be a house? Do we want it, and it's like, that is completely missing an opportunity. All the features that you can build in if you have a specific plan and know, yes, it's going to be a house and it's ideally gonna have four bedrooms and house this size family or blah, 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 blah. The more you go into it, the more you can tailor those designs to exactly that thing, and and also design things that would never make sense in any other context, that help make it special, help make it unique, because they you knew as much as you did going into it. So yeah, I. The, now I, there have been occasional exceptions where that is that is what made sense under the circumstances, but generally, you know, especially in the AAA world, there's a bit of a tendency for composers to just write pieces, or I can always tell what especially like a student composer's background is when they ref- when they ask me about the tracks that I compose, because the moment they use the word track, they are betraying the fact that they are not thinking non-linearly because tracks are linear. They are referring to like albums. I don't write tracks. I, I never have. Uh, it's not interesting to me unless I'm literally writing an album, which I, s- I still do. But but uh, in the case of game music, it's never that way um, with maybe one exception of a game that I did for Double Fine, um, uh, where it was pretty much just like a, a, a two-minute loops, that because the gameplay was so incredibly simple, and we also didn't have the tech to support anything uh, more elaborate than that, much to my chagrin. Although it was a wonderful, fun project called Connect Party. But um, in any case, so yeah, I uh, I, I would say that. Um, I don't really know the answer to that question because every time I start, I just have to look at the situation and kind of figure it out from there, and, I, and it changes. I mean, even even though there are cues that are systemically similar in Absu as in Journey in terms of the way that I unfold them, I wrote them different ways because, you know, in the case of Journey, I probably wrote them five or six years ago, and I've learned a lot since then. So, yeah, I'm still working it out. Ultimately, our, all the software out there, is designed for linear music, so um, you're always kind of having to use workarounds to figure out ways to make it even make sense, and I inevitably end up with really elaborate busing in order to try to um, toggle things quickly and easily on and off and create kind of simulations uh, before importing it into Wise or Fmod or whatever the case.
1: So do you get quite stuck into the tech side of it?
0: Well, what do you mean? But what like do you mean by stu-
1: implementing it and or is that more other people's jobs? On well, most of the projects I've
0: done, it's been other people's jobs, um, usually because they are, are inside the developer and they have access to far more than I would unless I literally moved my setup there. Um, and so that it almost always makes sense. Plus, there are people I've worked with, like Steve Green, for example, on Abzu, the, the sound designer, where he has a he has an incredibly profound depth of knowledge in the intricacies of wise and so I would much rather he be the one implementing the music in wise than me because he can do it better I mean he can we now we work together and I and I send him before he implements a single thing he has this elaborate blueprint in the form of a Google doc where I spell out exactly what it's supposed to do and sometimes if I think that's unclear I'll make a QuickTime video where I use some music editing to show, like I'll, I'll make a faked version of it to show, like, okay, here's a capture of the player swimming around this corner, and this is what it should sound like when we're done, and I, I music edit the, the music in order to show that, and then it goes, okay, how do we recreate that And Wise, Then, of course, he implements it, pushes out a new build, and I play test the game and find all the different ways to kind of break that, and then we troubleshoot that and, you know, chisel away and chisel away and chisel away until we run out of time. Um, and inevitably, it, it is simply about that. I mean, as soon as Abzu came out, I downloaded it onto my PS4 and immediately found like five or six things that I would love to change um, and in just the first 20 minutes of the game. So, you know, it's an inevitable byproduct of being that kind of anal about it. But but that's how we hope that it ends up being, you know, at least decent.
1: Sure. And when it comes to, like, writing, like you were saying, you have so many different projects and trying to keep it varied. Like, how do you sort of get in the zone for each different project?
0: Well, the so the way that I choose projects is this kind of threefold criteria, which is, first off, who's making it? Uh, second, what it is that they're making. And specifically what I mean by that is, what musical opportunities will that create? And by that I mean will it let me go somewhere that I feel like I've never been? Um, and so that becomes really important if number one is sort of neutral. Like if it's someone that I don't really know but they seem interesting, I'll then get really excited if it's something that I feel like I've never really written before. Uh, but inevitably if it's someone I do know uh, then and we've like got this great history then it doesn't actually matter uh what they're making because i would much rather continue to foster that collaboration because we're able to push each other and we're able to go deeper and abs is a perfect example of one and two kind of firing on on all cylinders because matt and i had a long history together from working on journey and really bonded during journey because we both felt such sort of mutual admiration and people would ask me you know what was the inspiration for the score and i would say well matt's art but then the funny thing is when someone would ask him the same thing about the art, he would say that about the music. And so we, we had a kind of back and forth, and it made it a no-brainer to want to work together as soon as he left and founded Giant Squid. And so um, – uh, and I realized what I just said presumes a knowledge of who Matt is. Matt, the creative director of, of um, Giant Squid, was the art director on Flower and Journey of, at that game at that game company and left to, to start his own studio. So for anyone – who has no idea what I was just talking about. There's the answer. Um, so uh, another a, a good example a few years ago of something in that second category, or the second criteria, um, is when, the, when Al Lowe came out of retirement to uh, shepherd the uh, remake of Leisure Suit Larry, a game he had originally made in 1987. I did not know Al, I knew who he was, and I certainly admired his career from afar. Uh, but we had no history together whatsoever, and I didn't know anyone else on that team, although Josh Mandel was the head writer, and he had been a writer at Sierra, and was the voice of King Graham in King's Quest Five, so that made me very excited. But, um, uh, but um, that was one where they said, we really want to go full-on you know, classic 18-piece big band, and I had never done anything like that before, and so that was one where the musical opportunity overwhelmed all other considerations. Um, and then I said there were three. The third is all the practical stuff, like how much time do I have, how well are they paying, how much budget do they have for uh, live uh, you know, production elements, like is this going to be um, a, a kind of intimate score, or is this something where we'll be recording big you know, over-the-top orchestra or something like that. All that is ultimately a lot less important to me than who I'm working with. It's, I would be lying to say it's not a factor. But if someone is paying, you know, really, really well, um, but the music, the musical opportunity—if they're basically saying we want you to rip off Journey, uh, which to me represents a totally negative musical opportunity, or if they were to say, and or and there's someone that I feel like I don't know if I really gel with this person, um, you know, it, it, at, at some point it reaches a, uh, a state where it's actually irrelevant to me how well they're paying because those others are so much more important to me, um, that, that kind of thing. So um, your question was something like, how do I, how, what, what was the exact phrasing? Because I feel like I've somehow managed to say all that <laughs> and not answer your question.
1: Uh, how do you get in the zone?
0: Oh, <laughs> All right. Well, that's, oh, so the reason I brought all that up is because it's really easy to get in the zone when I care about the people I'm working with. And that's why that's always the number one criteria. You know, like like, you know, I mean, I mentioned when we first jumped on the call that I'm working on this um, kind of mini violin concerto for Sandy Cameron based on some of the music from Assassin's Creed Syndicate. She was the original violinist on Assassin's Creed Syndicate, and she's someone I've grown really close with over the last uh, uh, year and a half or however long it's been. And... Um, And so getting in the zone is easy from the standpoint that I just dream about the idea of her playing. And immediately I just start flooding with ideas because she's so inspirational. And Tina Guo, the cellist with whom I work quite a lot, is a similar story where I just pick up the phone and I say, I want to do X, Y, Z with you. And she says, great, how's Thursday? And it's just like, then I can't turn it off. So uh, and, and of course, the musical opportunity aspect to it floods that as well, like if I'm you know, like I'm doing a game right now that I, I, you know, can't really talk about, but it's so different than than other games I've worked on um, that um, when I when I look at it, it's not difficult to get into the zone because I just think I'm wandering in a completely unknown field, and that that's just as exciting as anything I can ever imagine in this career.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um. I want to talk a little bit about Assassin's Creed but also cuz in the album book there's a lot of about the difficult time that you were going through while you were writing the soundtrack and sort of quite a lot happened and I wanted to ask if it was easier or harder to compose the music while that was going on and how it impacted on the score.
0: Oh it was vastly more difficult for every possible reason it becomes a little it becomes difficult to focus there are just literal impositions on your schedule. Um, you know, like I was, I was out of town with my family dealing with my father's uh, illness for the first month, the entire first month of the year, all of January last year, I was out of L.A., which I never am away like that. I don't even, I don't take, my honeymoon was not anywhere near that long. I mean, I never, ever, ever am out of town on that kind of time scale. Um, and Ubisoft, fortunately, were extremely wonderful, extremely gracious, told me, take all the time you need. They they trusted that um, I'd be able to make up for it because it was a ton of work. It was three and a half or so hours of music to write over about six, seven months, and to lose an entire month of that right at the beginning is not the greatest... St- I mean, I hadn't written a note yet, and uh, and uh, they... Uh, that, they would have been very justified to put an action, a plan into action to try to mitigate the risk that that entailed. But they didn't. They were very, uh, they were very wonderful. And and of course, it impacts the music immensely. Um, sometimes in ways that, that I don't really know, I can't measure. I just know that it's in there. Um, but then there are others where I'm deliberately using the music as a kind of escapism and catharsis for what I'm dealing with. And and either writing music to contain, like if I'm in a really dark emotional place, as was the case then, sometimes the music takes on a kind of um, a kind of upbeat and, and joyous quality as a deliberate sort of fuck you to all the horror that's going on, you know. Uh, yeah. And then other times I embrace that darkness as a way to just live inside of it and to not... Be guilty of suppressing it, um, and so for and, and Assassin's Creed is filled with both of those things. Um, you know, one of the the biggest things that happened was a, a friend of mine had been battling cancer for three years. Like one of my very best friends, and um, right in the middle of the project, a month before I was going to London to record the score, um, she she finally lost that battle. And so the very next day, you know, I had, I had this huge list of cues that I was working through. Um, and there's a, there's a series of dialogue scenes in the game that um, I, I'm not usually a fan of using the same cue over and over again for a specific purpose. But there was a little bit of that that, that, made, that, was, that was essentially required on Assassin's Creed. Um, and, And I found ways to make it work and there was one of those cues that that when I went into my studio this She died on June 8th June 9th I went into my studio the next morning Knowing that like I could not there was no luxury to take time off my my first day of recording at Abbey Road was July 3rd I was less than a month out and I still had a gigantic pile of music to write and so the next morning um, by by chance, uh, on my list, if I were just going through it in order, was this um, these dialogue scenes, that, this music that underscores these these arguments between Jacob and Evie, where they they, they reach this kind of this boiling point in their relationship, and and um, and ironically, they're kind of struggling with legacy with their father, and um, and so I wrote this cue that wasn't sort of me just. Bearing out in an almost melodramatic way a lot of the kind of uh, pain of the previous 24 hours, but in a way that was loyal to the musical vocabulary of of Syndicate. Like, it wasn't me writing in some abstract of how I would, in some vacuum, I should say, of how I would address my grief. Um, it was me specifically channeling that grief as much as I could through the language that I had worked out for Syndicate. And I thought this cue is going to be way too heavy. Um, and when I sent it to Ubisoft, I was prepared for them to kick it back and they loved it. Um, and so on the soundtrack album, that one's called for those we loved. Um, and it was, it was, it was, it was literally the first thing that I wrote the next morning. Um, and uh, so it was both. In other words, it, 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 figured in, but you know, an example of the celebratory nature, um, it's, it's not really represented much on the soundtrack album, but the, this friend of mine, her name was Claire. I had worked, I had written a piece that she came down the aisle to at her wedding, and so I snuck that piece into the game, um, especially because she was, she was, uh, her, her mother is Australian, and her father Jordanian. She grew up in Amman, Jordan, you know, but but um, but she was Jordanian, Australian but educated in London and so um, and London was a very special place for her and, and her husband who's, who's like my brother, he's my closest friend in the world and um, and so it was this wonderful irony that the game takes place in London and so um, I, ch- I thought it would be a wonderful way to, to sneak a little tribute, a kind of permanent monument to her into the game by choosing an interesting place in London to, to position this queue which is verbatim what I, what, um, what actually what her husband, he and I co-wrote, he's not a composer at all, but we kind of co-wrote this melody that she came down the aisle to when she married him. And so, um, I, um, it's, it's in one of the reach high point, uh, cues, which is the, you know, the Eagle vision where you go up to the top of some point and you sort of synchronize to reveal the various items on the map. We call those the reach high points, um, a- internally. And, So when you do that over the Thames um, in the middle, and it gives you kind of the most wide view of London because you're right in the center, um, it plays this little, uh, hold on, I have a timpani loaded on my keyboard. Uh, It plays this little melody that goes like this. Uh, which is this very intentionally old-fashioned Charlie Chaplin-esque tune that she came down the aisle to, and that's that's verbatim what what plays during that. And so that was a way to kind of poignantly uh, celebrate. And so yeah, in any case, I could I could go on and on and on. Um, and then I, as soon as AC was done, I went straight into a movie with that director, her husband, that he had been shooting right up until the end. Um, and I. I found ways to do all that all over again, and I included that melody in that film score as well uh, during the end credits in a very big, over-the-top, celebratory kind of way. That hasn't come out yet. The film's called *The Rendezvous*, but I look forward to sharing that because it's a big, it's a big, uh, fun, old-fashioned orchestral film score, and it culminates in that in that melody. So, if anyone ever. Sees that film or hears that score, who also played AC, they'll probably pick out if they're if they're if they're paying attention. They'll they would potentially pick out this melody which shows up in both, and that's the reason why.
1: Well, I'm gonna look for it now.
0: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Um, I'll bring the mood up a bit with a final question and ask what your proudest moment is as a composer.
0: Um. You know, that's very interesting. I don't know. There are a lot of moments that I feel very proud of. They're never really about the writing, but they're about the fact that I have got lucky, um, and particularly with Journey, that the game ended up meaning something at all to people. And because music is so easily extracted and and wrapped into your life you know like you play the game you hear the music while you're playing you like the game and then you want to carry that with you so then you're like oh well i can put the music on you know my ipod or whatever and 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 it can actually it can actually continue the experience of the game for me out outside of the game when people listen to soundtracks i think that's primarily what they're doing as opposed to i love this music on its own terms and i just want to listen to it there are people like that and there are people that you know, listen to soundtracks who never even watch the films or play the games from which they were born. But um, but generally speaking, if a soundtrack becomes really popular, it's because the game is popular or the film is popular. And so for me, the the only kind of proud moments, which I'm completely um, beholden to the success and popularity of the game or film for is when people build that music into their life in a really, really personal way. So like when I get emails and I, astonishingly, it's still surreal to me to this day. Almost every day I get emails to the effect of, you know, I just like a bride saying I just came down the aisle at my wedding to I was born for this or something from Journey. Or, or, um, or I played, I played that at my, you know, so and so, whoever's funeral, or um, one I get a lot, especially when Flow first came out, all oh, many years ago, were people who would say I really um, uh, struggle with like insomnia, and 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 this this music has a kind of pervasively calming effect, and I actually find that that it's not as big a deal for me when I listen to it, or if I put it on at night when I'm trying to fall asleep. Um, Things like that where people end up doing – like they take it into their life beyond just wallpaper in the background while they're doing something. But it actually has something – it has a more meaningful place in their life. That to me – I don't give myself credit for that. I don't like say, aha, therefore I wrote something amazing. It's much more that I feel lucky to have been part of something that meant enough to them that they would want to keep some – constituent element of that thing in their life. And I happen to be lucky that music is such an easy way for them to do that because it's difficult to take, like, the art into your life with you or the game mechanics into your life with you or all the other elements that add up together to make the game. Music is, is kind of the weird, odd one out in that way. So when people build it into their life and make uh, make it something really personal, now you see that a lot with the games themselves, You know, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, I, I, you know, played this game like, like, oh, actually, here's a good example. We've been doing Journey Live um, um, where we play the we have people play the game on stage while we do the score completely acoustically on stage. um, And the game is being projected without any music in it. Um, And uh, we're able to do the whole game as a concert. And we did a Kickstarter for it, and one of the rewards was, like, be the, be the player at a given show. And there was a guy that bought that who – we just did it last month in New York. And he had said that, like, days before the Kickstarter went online, his dog um, had, had gotten really ill, and he had to put it down. And so he was, like, blasting the Journey music while he did that, and it kind of let him, you know – be in some kind of emotionally stable place or or something to that effect. And he he came to our concert and told me that. Um, And to me, you know, stories like that, I don't, again, I don't claim um, that the music, that that is any kind of statement of quality of the writing. Because I don't have any idea if the music is any good, because there's no way you could convince me that it is, because all I could tell you is the million things that I might have done differently, and you can't prove to me that those wouldn't have made it better. So I I never, I never make claims of quality. I just don't know how that's objectively verifiable. But I do take pride, or I feel, I don't know if pride's even the right word, but I feel it makes me feel really happy when people are able to make use of it in a way beyond just like, oh, that was fun to listen to, or that was nice while I studied or it made the cab ride feel slightly more interesting or whatever kind of background purpose, which I'm thrilled by that too. Like whatever people's use, I, I pass no judgment. I'm thrilled by by anything. I used to be bothered by the idea of putting it on in the background while people did homework and things like that. I used to think like, God, I, I'm because I, I can't relate to that. I can't listen to music that way. And so I, always, I was always a bit troubled. And there was even an article that, that like – VICE or somebody, a major publication ran the top ten soundtracks to listen to while you study, and they put Journey as number one. And I was initially like, "God, really?" And then I came to realize that's actually something I should feel, I should feel thrilled about, not upset by, um, because I just can't relate to it. Um, and but any any incorporation into into someone's life, no matter what, is something that I feel uh, very touched by. So. I don't know that I would ever use the word pride, but that's the best answer I can give you. (laughs) Well,
1: that's a good one. (laughs) Well, it's been really awesome having you and thank you very much for talking to us.